Welcome to CT Church. This message was recorded during our Sunday service. We hope you enjoy this presentation. This morning, uh, we're wrapping up our little two-part mini-series entitled Fatal Attractions, The Seduction of Stuff. We talked last week about how just stuff can just overwhelm our life and just kind of we get all wrapped up in, in, in stuff. And a few years back, Forbes magazine, anybody here get Forbes magazine? So you got to have a lot of money or you don't even care about Forbes magazine, you know. But Forbes magazine ran this article. It was entitled, The Best Places to Get Rich. Well, if you read that, you, that piques your interest a little bit, right? <clears throat> the best places to get rich. And their assumption was that if you move to these places, you'll have a, lot, a much greater chance of achieving prosperity and lasting satisfaction in life. And what city would you guess that they said you should move to for your best chances of becoming a millionaire? You, you, most of you have probably already guessed it. Madison, Wisconsin. Anybody from Madison, Wisconsin? <laughs> Madison, Wisconsin. I, I have been, personally, I've been to Madison, Wisconsin about four times in my life. They have a little place to go snow skiing there, and so we lived in Illinois, so that was the closest place. And, you know, it's, it's a nice little town. The cost of living is reasonable. Uh, living conditions seem decent. They have a university there. Um, so overall, after having been to Madison, Wisconsin four times, I would say that the only downside to moving to Madison, Wisconsin, is that if you are, in fact, able to make your million dollars, you'd still be living in Madison, Wisconsin. Not to knock it, but I'm just telling you, they have some nasty, nasty winners in Madison, Wisconsin. I mean, they were bad enough in Illinois. And the higher you go, the worse it gets. I just, uh, half of my life, I lived in, in uh, Nasty, cold winter and snow, and I was thankful to get here. Who's with me? That's right. I tell you what, up there in Madison, Wisconsin today, it's not going to be 73 degrees. I'm all for 73 degrees here. Well, let's say you set your sights higher. And you've acquired your million dollars. You're living there in Madison, Wisconsin. But you just feel like you haven't quite achieved that that lasting satisfaction you thought that million bucks would bring you. So let's say now you want to become a billionaire. Where do you think Forbes magazine says you should move for your best chance to become a billionaire? Palo Alto, California. Palo Alto, California is where the overall ranking for the accumulation of wealth was number one in the country. It ranks first in venture capital activity. It ranks first in the number of venture capital firms, and it ranks first in education. I'm support. I don't even know what venture capital means really. I'm just reading this, what what I saw on the internet. Does anybody know exactly what a venture capitalist is? Well, okay, so see, anyway... But let's say you're now living in Palo Alto, California, you and all of your venture capitalist friends, and you've acquired your billion dollars, but you realize you still don't feel like you have that real 
soul satisfaction that you thought you were going to have. So let's assume for a minute you aim your sights even higher. Let's say you aim for a life that is full of meaning and generosity and integrity and purpose and compassion and joy. Where do you move for all of that? Forbes magazine didn't tell us. If that's our aim, apparently we're going to have to uh, find a higher level of authority than even Forbes magazine. And we have to ask a different question. And to get to that question, I want to read a story out of Luke chapter 16. If you have your Bibles or your, your Bible apps, you can turn to Luke 16, beginning at verse 1. And I will tell you, this is one of those really strange stories in the Bible. It's one of those stories that if you just read it and you don't dig into it, you just sit there scratching your head thinking, what in the world is going on here? And I think you'll understand here in a minute. Here it is. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and he asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what, what, am I, what should I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what, I, what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted so shrewdly. You see, that's where the story gets weird, right? The master commends this dishonest accountant of his because he's so shrewd. And it goes on to say, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Verse 10 says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with little will be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So this morning, I, I want us to kind of break down this story a little bit, kind of talk about it in more of a modern vernacular, you might say. The gist of the story is we have this very wealthy guy. Forbes magazine would have probably called him a venture capitalist. And so this, this venture capitalist, he finds out that one of his accountants has, that has been managing a good portion of his money has been losing money by the fistful. Now, maybe he's been embezzling or maybe he's just incompetent. And we don't know. The story doesn't tell us that part, probably because it's not important to the story. But we do know this, 
this, the boss, he says to his account, he says, what am I hearing about you? So apparently he's been getting this steady stream of information about this guy and it is not good, right? So the accountant, on the other hand, he starts thinking to himself, oh my, oh my goodness, how much does the master know? How many of you remember from your childhood when your mom and dad, they would look at you with that look that says you are in some trouble? Anybody remember that? First you see the look. Tighten up a little bit. And then, you know, you know you're in trouble for something. And then they would ask you that question. Uh, You want to tell me what you've been up to? Now you know they know something. But you don't know what they know. And so now you are feverishly scanning through that mental Rolodex, you know, trying to figure out, I wonder what exactly it is they're talking about because, you know, I don't want to blurt out something that they don't even know about. Now I'm in trouble for two things. Anybody remember that? I'm not the only one that went through this this whole process, you know, that hated that question. You want to tell me what you've been up to? Well, not really. That never seemed to work, you know. Then why ask me? But anyway, you know, it's that's what this manager is doing here. He doesn't want to give the master any information that he doesn't already have, so he's not really fully responding to the question. All of you who have been parents, let me see your hands of everyone who's been parents and raised kids. You have all experienced this type of situation with your kids. They're in some other room of the house, you know, playing, doing something, and all of a sudden you hear... Well, it was really fun to see you. Whoa! I got your attention. But now you remember that sound, right? Some horrible crash. It sounded expensive, too. And so what do we do? You know, we say, hey, what's going on in there? Right? And then we get the universal kid response, a pause followed by the word, you've been there. That sounds like the roof is just collapsed. What's going on? Nothing going on in here. Don't need, no need to come in here. Everything's fine. You just keep doing, you know, nothing more to see here. Nothing. Remember those days? Why do you think that? It, why, did kid, why do we do that as kids? Why do kids still do that? Because, you know, kids aren't, they're not dumb, but when we're kids, we often make the mistake of thinking our parents are. Right? And so, you know, we always feel like, you know, we can fool them. We did it to our parents and our kids will do it to us. Their kids will do it. It's just, it's a generational thing. And that's what's going on here with this accountant, even though he's a grown adult. He's not a stupid guy, but he's thinking, you know, maybe I can at least try to bluff my way out of this thing. But then he realizes it's too late. The hammer drops. The master says, you will no longer be my manager. In other words, he's getting fired right there. He says, but he says, but give me an accounting of what you've been doing. In other words, he's saying, turn over the books because there's about to be an audit. The party's over, right? Now, the thing is, though, the audit hadn't actually happened yet. He knows it's coming, but he knows he's got a little bit of time. And the people in the town, they're not aware that he's been fired yet. So, he, he knows he's in trouble. He knows if he doesn't think of something really quick, man, he is just, he is absolutely toast. 
And he's thinking to himself, he said, what, what am I going to do? I'm losing my job. What, I've got to come up with a plan. What, what am I going to do for a living? So he's not just drifting along in what some people call a Doris Day complex. Okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. I don't know, you know, we'll just see. No, that's, that's not him. I mean, this guy jumps into action, and he is considering these alternative employment possibilities. He thinks to himself, well, you know, I guess I could dig ditches, but nah, I'm not really strong enough for that. Uh, I could stand out on the corner with, you know, my uh, will work for food sign. But I'm too proud to do that. I can't go begging. So he just keeps thinking creatively until he comes up with this plan. He calls in all of his master's debtors, and you notice that he calls them in one at a time, which is smart, so they all can't get together and kind of figure out what's going on here. The guy's pretty, pretty clever. And so he ends up reducing all of their debts by what in today's dollars would probably be tens of thousands of dollars, so that from now on, these guys will feel indebted to him. And now they'll feel a lot more obligated to help him out, you know, when they find out he's lost his job. Man, this guy sounds like the original Washington politician prototype. He's, he figured out the system. So that's some pretty clever thinking, right? Even if it was underhanded. And the master commends him. He gives him you know, kind of an A for effort sort of thing because he had been so clever. Now, you, that's the part where you stop and you scratch your head a little bit. You think, is Jesus commending dishonest business dealings? Absolutely not. We, we all know better than that. We know that this story is a parable, right? A parable is not necessarily fact. It's usually a story that presents an idea or a lesson that we're supposed to learn. So we know we've got this accountant. He's got a little bit of time, a little bit of money. He has no good purposes in life. He has no honest character. And life is just kind of all about him. But he does one thing right. He doesn't go into drift mode. I mean, he actually does something. He formulates a plan and he executes it to perfection. And Jesus is saying through this story that when people get all fired up about a dream, even if it's selfish, even if it's dishonest, even if it's just all about them, that people in this world can become incredibly creative about how to finance their dreams and ideas. They will apparently move, even move to Madison, Wisconsin. It's amazing what people will do, right? Jesus is saying that even people who are far away from God can get pretty shrewd about their stuff. Man, they can dream dreams. They can formulate plans. They can demonstrate uh, unbelievable creativity and, and imagination. And they'll execute those plans with a lot of determination and passion. They'll even take Big risks sometimes, like the guy in this story. Yet oftentimes, Jesus is saying that the children of God who have this opportunity to use their stuff to make a difference for eternity, a lot of times have a tendency to become very passive. 
whatever will be, will be. I got all this stuff, you know, but I just, you know, I'm just kind of sitting on it. I have to think that probably everybody in this room, I would like to think, would internally, you'd like to be known as a generous person. I don't think there's anybody here that says, you know, my highest ambition in life is to just become a stingy slave to my stuff. Hopefully there's nobody here that that's your ambition in life. I don't think that most people are deliberately on that road, but man, I have seen a lot of people in this world who, who demonstrate that with their life, you know, every day in and day out, their sole ambition is just to get more and more and more stuff. And at the same time, you know, all over the earth, there's atrocities, there's starvation, there's human genocide, there's just all sorts of these things, and they don't even have a clue because there's this total disconnect from reality. And all they can get their attention on is just what new stuff can I get? They hop out of bed in the morning, what new stuff can I get today? You know, I've been to... I've walked down the streets in New York City, in the, you know, in, in the Manhattan district. I've, and I've walked down streets in Los Angeles, uh, specifically on Rodeo Drive. I've walked up and down those streets. And the two times I did it, I saw something that I just, to this day, it just really amuses me. In both New York City and in Los Angeles, both times as I was walking down the street, I saw a woman... It just happened to be a woman both times. I mean, they were dressed to the hilt. And both of them had a pet dog with them. One was on a leash that looked like it was diamond studded. One was in this little fancy blingy dog carrier bag. It was probably a Louis Vuitton, probably a $5,000 dog carrier bag. And I'm just telling you, those two dogs had more diamonds and more bling and designer stuff than most of us will ever see. It was just crazy. And I thought, you know, money and prosperity can cause people to just disconnect from reality. And people just get caught up in stuff and caught up in what they're spending all their money on. And even for any of us here, it's easy for us to delude ourselves into thinking that we're already, we're very generous people when maybe the truth is we haven't really done all that much. You know, I remember, maybe you remember seeing those old uh, pictures, some on TV or posters of our ex-president, Jimmy Carter. He'd be in blue jeans and flannel shirt and a hammer, and it was an advertisement for building uh, those Habitat for Humanity homes. And he did a great job with that. And you may be thinking, you know, man, I'm all, I'm all for building those homes for, for, for the people who can't afford housing. I'm all for that. You know, I must be a generous person because I'm for that. But the only thing is, you know, Jimmy was the one out there swinging a hammer and we were just, you know, laying on a couch eating cheese puffs thinking, you know, I'm, I'm for that. And the fact that I'm for it, it just means I, I care about people. Or someone, you know, on TV, you might see one of those commercials and there's this, you know, hungry, starving child. And you think to yourself, you know, how sad it is and and you, and you start to think, man, I'm glad I'm not like a lot of those callous people. They see these pictures. They don't even feel bad for these kids. I must be a very compassionate person. 
But the whole time, as bad as it might make you feel, you still don't really do anything about it. Maybe you see uh, some of the just crazy outlandish spending habits of some celebrities these days. You know, who have Paris Hilton, Justin Bieber, Kim Kardashian, Kanye. Somebody's always buying something crazy. Not long ago, Justin Bieber bought a $250,000 chrome car. And then he was told he can't drive it because the sun reflecting off it was literally blinding other drivers. He didn't get to drive it anymore. Ironic, isn't it? You bought a car because it's shiny. Well, turns out it's a little too shiny. I found that amusing. But you may think to yourself, you know, Wow, that's just crazy how these people spend their money so ridiculous. I tell you this much, if I was rich like that, I would be way more generous and I'd help other people rather than spend that money on crazy stuff like that. Unfortunately, I'm not rich and it just takes every nickel I have just to take care of myself. I'm just saying if I was rich, well then, you know, you can take it to the bank. I would be generous. And I say, and the Bible says, no, you wouldn't. You know, we as Christians, people do that sort of thing all the time, but the truth is nobody in this world just kind of drifts into this life of compassion and generosity. It doesn't come naturally. Nobody wakes up one morning and discovers that somehow they have just defeated uh, materialism and, you know, the stuff monster, I call it. Jesus said this, though. He said, if you are a follower of mine, if you really believe that everything belongs to God and if you have experienced God's grace by what took place at Calvary's cross, if you have the assurance that you're going to live in heaven forever and ever and you've got all those things, then he's saying this. Look, could you please just get as intentional and as industrious and as creative and as fired up as this guy who was stealing money from his employer. Could you at least get that motivated to do things for the kingdom of God? That's what this story is talking about. Jesus is saying, look, don't, don't just listen to my stories and say, man, yeah, Jesus, I'm with you, boy. But then you never really do anything about it. You know, we have to agree with it, but then we also have to do something about it. Because we can deceive ourselves into believing that we're very compassionate, very generous, just because we have those kind of thoughts or feelings, but we just never really do anything about it. The truth is this, all of us, each and every one of us, we have this very, very limited amount of time and opportunity. And if like this guy in our story who is not even a believer, he's dishonest, and he's just kind of selfishly piling up stuff for himself, if he can get energetic and creative about how to use his stuff to better himself, how much more should we as Christians be able to be creative and energetic about how we can use our life and we can use our time and our finances and just use our stuff to help others and to be building the kingdom of God? Not just gathering, gathering, gathering. You know, somebody explained it, it's a lifestyle that says, I get all I can, and I can all I get. 
I gather it in and hide it away, tuck it away. Here Here are some simple suggestions. The first, you have to start at the beginning, which is tithing, being faithful to God in our finances. Pastor Todd was talking about that. Janet and I learned a long time ago, when you get a paycheck, you take God's 10% right off the top before you're even tempted to spend it on something else. Malachi 3.10 says to bring the whole tithe, the 10% into the storehouse. And God says, he says, test me in this. And so I bring this to your attention because we also read in God's word, tempt not the Lord thy God. We read that. But in this instance, God is saying, look, this is one area I want you to test me in. And so who's he talking to? He's talking to people who don't believe in the power of tithing. Otherwise, he wouldn't be having to say, test me in it. Because we've all been at that place in our life where we thought, you know, this doesn't make sense. It's just not going to work out. But Jesus says, look, you test me in this and see that I won't meet all of your needs in abundance. I mean, it's, it's like he's jumping straight to the triple dog dare. Straight for the jugular. You know, you just try me in it. And, you know, keep in mind that 10%, that's the basic minimum. That's the least we can do for God without being guilty of stealing his money. Because that God's word says that 10% actually... It already belongs to him. He's just wanting to see if we're going to be honest with it. But the great thing is this. You know, years years ago when Janet and I, we were wondering, I don't know how this is going to work because when we did it all, we did up all the numbers on a piece of paper and then we subtracted that 10%. It's not going to work out. So we just did it anyway. And you know what? In all of these years, and it's a lot of years, since we've been tithing, the only time we've ever, you know, been late on our bills was when we accidentally stuck a bill under a stack of stuff and forgot about it. And when I say we, you know, I mean me. <laughs> I'm almost always the guilty party. Yeah, I saw that thing. Oh, here, I stuck it under this uh, pile of paper. That's kind of how that works out. The truth is this. If you're thinking, if, if this thought process, you know, ever travels through your brain, look, I'm never going to be able to give more than 10% because the truth is I can't even give the first 10%. If that's what you're thinking, you are absolutely correct. You're dead wrong. You're, you're right. Until you are, because until you are faithful with that first 10%, you're never going to be blessed with an overabundance. And, and it, I know it can be hard to start. High school student, college student, single person, uh, single parent, maybe a young married couple like we were trying to get started out. And and it's very easy to think, well, now, Lord, you know, I want to give you that 10%. But you also know that, you know, until we get a little more established, until, you know, a few things kind of pan out, we get a few bills paid off, uh, you know, maybe I get a raise or something, you know, as soon as that happens, Lord, boy, you count us in for that 10%. That 10% is never going to happen. You know, that, that attitude, it works out about 0% of the time. Well, one of these days when I have enough, then, then I'll start. No, that's not how it works. 
If you don't have faith to be faithful with a little, we'll never be faithful with a lot. You see, that's the great illusion of life that we all experience sometimes. That illusion is, you know, if I just had more, then I could be generous. If I just had more than I've got right now, then I could be faithful. But Scripture says that giving never works that way. The heart does not work that way. So he's saying, you know, just be like this guy in the story. Be shrewd and clever and creative and determined and have some ambition with the stuff you have. No matter where your income comes from, a bonus, inheritance, a gift, whatever, give God his 10% of the increase and just see what begins to happen in your life. You know, here's a little piece of financial advice. This is free. I throw this in. This is courtesy of Dave Ramsey. He says, and I agree, take another 5 to 10% of your income and tuck it away in savings and learn to live off of 80% of your income. The Bible says that the wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends everything he gets. I was foolish for a lot of years of my life. Oh, I got a hundred bucks. Hey, I got a hundred bucks. I can go spend. Anybody else ever like that? Took me a while to smarten up a little bit. Took getting married and having a wife that would say, you're not getting that. Hey, I think I'm going to go with it. Oh, no, you're not. And I don't blame her. It's just she was smarter than me. You know, and she kind of helped me see the light, so to speak. And I, I really give her credit for helping change the way I view money and spending and stuff. You know, is thank you, hon. <laughs> and uh, any of you other men, you know, you, you'd say that, hey, I tell you what, you know, my wife, she straightened me out. America is now the number one debtor country in the world. We now owe more money to everyone than any other country in the world. But yet we come back to this. The wise man says, save for the future, for the foolish man spends everything he gets. I think we ought to write that on paper and send it to all the politicians, right? The government needs to be aware of this truth. It is a fact that since 1972, even though total family income has risen dramatically, largely due to both the husband and wife going to work, the average family income has risen dramatically since 1972, the average amount of income that people save has gone from 8% on average to less than 3%. So even though people now have a lot more, they have a lot less. It's funny how that works, isn't it? According to statistics, over 30% of all college students now leave school with over $10,000 of credit card debt that is totally unrelated to school. It's not about books. It's not about tuition. It was about stuff. The seduction of stuff. Fox News reported two different cases of college students committing suicide and leaving notes saying that their debts were just crushing them. Something's out of balance. So as, we, as, we, as I close here, and I say that, you know, 
Don't think too optimistically. I've still got a page and a half of notes. <laughs> but as I start to enter into close here, I leave you with this incredible dynamic that gets set in place whenever someone decides to be a giver. And that is Luke 6.38. Give and it will be given to you. Give and it will be given to you. Now there's a real dynamic there. In other words, it's saying it will not be given to you until you give. Because it's so easy for us in life to try to make it work the other way. Well, as soon as I get, as soon as I get, then I'm going to give. Well, you're never going to get until you give. We, and we just have a hard time keeping that priority. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So this verse is saying, if we'll just give, we'll all be millionaires, right? No, that's not what it's saying. So many times the Lord blesses us in so many ways other than cold, hard cash. I know what some of you are thinking. I'd really prefer the cold, hard cash. You know why you're probably not getting blessed with a bunch of cold, hard cash from the Lord? Because he knows you would just absolutely ruin yourself. Something to think about. He has to know he can trust us with the cold, hard cash before it's just going to flow into our lives. He wants to know if it starts flowing into our lives, is it going to flow out of our lives to help build his kingdom? Those are the people he trusts with the cold, hard cash. I threw that in for free. It's not even in my notes. Who's glad you came to church this morning? All right. It's good stuff, isn't it? The truth is this. When you're faithful to God, he is more than faithful to meet our needs. More than faithful. I'm telling you, you know, his word says when we're faithful to him, he opens up the storehouse of blessing. Opens up the storehouse. Now, does that sound like uh, you're, whatever your need is, that's your, you're getting nothing else? You're just going to get by? That's not what it sounds like, is it? He opens up the storehouse of blessing in our life. So when we're greedy or stingy or disobedient and we're not faithful to God with the finances that he has trusted to us, all we're doing is just closing the door of blessing in our life. We do it ourselves. When you're a generous person, when you have lived that life of what we last week we termed frenzied generosity, because generosity really becomes contagious. It becomes contagious because people realize, man, it is, it is fun to give. Have you experienced that in your life? You know, when the Bible says, you know, when you, when you hear it's more blessed to give than receive, that, that's, that's truth. It is so fun to be a giver, and it becomes contagious. And when you're a generous person, you're going to look back on your life, you're going to be amazed at how many people you helped in, during their life, to see the difference that you were able to make in, in the lives of people and in the kingdom of God, all because you learned to control your stuff instead of letting your stuff control you. That's what it's about. And so I'll just... Go ahead and give Pastor Chris and the youth department a plug. If you've got too much stuff than you need, let me see your hand if you have too much more stuff than you really need. Every hand, the rest of you just lying, huh? We've all got more stuff than we need. So if we need to unload some stuff this week, let's bring it to Pastor Chris. 
He's made it so easy. Have you ever thought, I don't know what to do with all this stuff? Right there. Bring it to him, right, Chris? He'll take all of your stuff. What a blessing, right? This week, go through your stuff and figure out what you need and you don't need and what you don't need. Bring it to Chris and it's going to be used to build the kingdom of God. Amen? So, my second closing. If you want to be a millionaire, move to Madison, Wisconsin. If you want to be a billionaire, move to Palo Alto, California. However, if you want to take it up several notches and, and you want to actually live a life of generosity, live a life of compassion, live a life having an assurance that you have everlasting life and everlasting joy, then all you need to do is move closer to God. That's where you move. Amen? It all begins with first things first, learning to trust God completely. I'll tell you, the reason people aren't generous givers, you can trace it back, they don't completely trust God. Learning to give is all about learning to trust God. You know, in this real world we live in, you're not going to give a dime to somebody that you do not trust. Well, it's the same in the spiritual realm. Until we fully can trust God, we're probably not going to be the givers that he's called us to be. But the more that trust builds, the more that relationship grows, I'm just telling you, the more generous you become, and the more generous you become, the more blessing he begins to funnel through your life because he knows he can trust you. That's how it works. It's a principle of the kingdom that's never going to change. Give, and then it will be given to you. You have been listening to CT Church in San Antonio, Texas. This recording was presented in the context of our Sunday service. For more information, please visit us at ctagsa.com, connect with us on Facebook, or call us at 210-657-3578.